0: Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 47 and we're between major operations, as it were. Last week, I published episodes 45 and 46 after being out of action for a few days. Nothing serious, just the real world, you know. We heard about Ops Smokeshell over the past few episodes. The next major incursion into Angola will be Operation Protea. There's quite a bit to cover before then. Ops Skeptic, and particularly the battle for the Swapo complex codenamed Smokeshell, had been a valuable learning curve for the SADF. At the same time, a new round of political negotiations were underway in June 1980, and General Magnus Malan had been appointed Minister of Defence in October. General Fulhoun was now Chief of the Defence Force, and Lieutenant General Yanni Ghaldenhuis took over as Chief of the Army in November. He was set to head back to Pretoria from his HQ in Oshikati. Taking a closer look at the attempt at restarting negotiations, when it came to Namibian settlement talks, Foreign Affairs Minister Puk Borte had offered to reduce operational bases in the proposed demilitarized zone from 40 to 20, but on certain conditions. Pretoria also wanted an undertaking from SWAPO that it would abandon its claim to bases inside South West Africa, but could retain those in Angola. Borte also demanded that UN Secretary General Kurt Waldheim stop referring to SWAPO as the only authentic representative of the Namibian people which the UN leader had been doing on trips particularly to other African countries. Boltheim initially agreed to Pretoria's demands, then told the South Africans that the African frontline states and SWAPO had begrudgingly accepted that while they still believed that the SADF didn't need the 20 bases after elections at all, that the UN force would be able to cope with tensions and they would accept the terms. But the sticking point was Swapo was refusing to disarm their combatants before the South Africans disarmed and vice versa. Angola and Zambia in particular wanted this war to end. It was destabilizing their countries and they wanted out. Luanda and Lusaka had told the South Africans that they supported Pretoria's position concerning the DMZ and the reduction of bases from 20 to 40. Fine words and yet it was not so simple as it never is in politics. Resolution 435 was at the core of the Southwest African-Namibian dispute. Remember, it had been passed by the UN Security Council way back in 1978 and consisted of proposals for a ceasefire which had to be declared before any independent elections would take place. This was shortly after the disaster in Angola, where the UN pushed for elections while the MPLA, UNITA and the FNLA continued to fight for dominance. The UN appeared to have learnt its lesson from that disaster, and the idea was for all parties to stop the shooting war in Southwest. Then a UN force would be installed called the United Nations Transition Assistance Group, or UNTAG. The big question was who was going to enforce and monitor the implementation of 435, and who was going to blink first, Swapo or Pretoria. And the other problem was the timing. Then, of course, Operation Skeptic began at the time of initial negotiations, which appeared to scupper good faith between the parties. If you stand back and observe these goings-on, you can see why the South Africans naturally felt hard done by. Here was Swapo conducting an insurgency into South West Africa, killing civilians and laying mines, and when the SADF in turn invaded Angola to take out the bases from where these attacks were taking place, Duren stepped in and declared these operations illegal. How unfair, said Pretoria, level the playing field. Okay, said Swapo. give us our independence and go home and hold free and fair elections there for your people. That'll level the playing field. Valtime launched a strong attack on Pretoria after Operation Skeptic, and in response, Pick Boerter said he was surprised by the Secretary General's remarks. Dr. Valtime's attack on South Africa is nothing new, said Pick. He does it regularly when he visits Africa to, among other things, hide the incapability of the United Nations to do something positive about the development of Africa. Pointing out the constant warring and disastrous states of places like Chad, Mali, Libya, Morocco, Sudan, Ethiopia, Mozambique, the Congo, Sierra Leone, Côte d'Ivoire, etc. was a fairly good ploy, if you're debating from a position of strength. The unfairness debate was really just a smokescreen used by elements of the National Party to grandstand for their electorate at home. The eternal underdog logic was a profoundly important narrative. It had been used by Ian Smith's Rhodesia, and now it was used by P.W. Botha's South Africa. But for how long would it be useful? A government enforcing apartheid, negotiating with the UN, loyaled by post-colonial global politics, was never going to be refereed with anything approaching objectivity, now was it? The diplomatic shouting match had barely died down before the SADF launched another invasion into Angola called Operation clip This began at dawn on the 30th of July, 1980, when SADF forces launched an attack on a Swapo logistics base near Chitado. Which was only 5 kilometers from the cut line and around 35 kilometers east of Rokana. Swapo had proved quite effective at lobbing mortars at the Rokana hydroelectric scheme, as you've heard, and now the SADF was intent on dealing the attackers a blow, pushing them further north. 80 men were dropped by helicopters close to the town of Chitado after 20,000 leaflets were dropped warning civilians of the impending attack. Alouette gunships supported the company as they deployed, and 27 planned troops were killed. Then the SADF destroyed an MPLA base in the town for good measure before withdrawing. Back in Vintook two days later, the South West African Territorial Force, or SWATF, was officially launched as part of the SADF. Eventually it would take over the lion's share of the fighting that was still going to take place along South West Africa's northern border. Using a local force was an advantage for the SADF because they were more worried about a direct threat inside South Africa itself. The ANC and PAC armed wings MK and APLA were increasing their insurgency and the bombing campaigns in South Africa were also escalating. The National Service death toll had been accelerating too, so creating a SWATF meant the grunt work inside SWA in the future could be largely dealt with by locals, not South Africans parachuted in every year as part of the National Service. But the SWATF commander remained an SADF general who was also the Secretary of Defense and the administration's military advisor. So, SWATF was comprised of three combat groups. The Corps was a full-time component. The second were the locally recruited light infantry battalions, which were mainly based on tribal lines, and the third group were the area forces, which were commanders and territorial units. There was also an air wing, which was a cobbled-together affair of mainly light plane owners. The big exception, of course, was 3-2 battalion. It was so valuable as a military resource to Pretoria that it was retained under control of the SADF directly. Thus, Swatif had around 1,000 members by the end of 1980, but would number over 20,000 by the end of the border war, the Namibian War of Independence, and would include engineers, parachute regiments, artillery, and signals, amongst others. So, the insurgency into Avamberland recorded a massive spike in September 1980, when a large 150-member plan group led by a seasoned campaigner called Kelola entered northern southwest Africa as a single large unit. But they were tracked down and ambushed after a tip-off from local Avambos. An intense firefight over four days left 81 Swapu dead, including the commander. The SADF reported no casualties. Eight SADF soldiers had died in August, and yet in September, despite the obvious increased activity by Swapu and the massive firefight just mentioned, no SADF wounded or killed, seems unlikely. And of course, it was. At least one 3-2 battalion member had died in September, according to later reports. On the 5th of September, Lance Corporal E. Sophia was shot by friendly fire. A platoon commander had dropped his pistol while leading his men in a contact. Then, when some of his troops went back to pick it up, they walked straight into their own stopper group, which didn't recognize them and opened fire. As an ops medic, I've treated soldiers hit by friendly fire, including anti-personnel shells, and it's excruciating in the extreme, it's frustrating, and it's demotivating. By now, 3-2 Battalion was engaged in a vital reconnaissance operation through the month searching for Swapo's elusive Northwest Sector HQ. On the 15th of September, Reki teams that were operating independently of Delta and Charlie Company tracked a Swapo guerrilla as he moved through the bush from a deserted village 20 kilometers southeast of Kuamato, inside Angola. The insurgent had grabbed food from a cache and the Rekis tracked him back to a small base where at least 10 other Swapo guerrillas were hiding out. Gunships were called in and the seven-man Reki team attacked on the ground killing two Swapo guerrillas. Villagers then told the Rekis that another large group of Swapo were drinking beer at a village southwest of Kuamato, so the special force members trotted off to investigate. Indeed, the intelligence was spot on. Three Swapo were spotted changing clothes at the village and were shot. Then another larger group opened fire on the Rekis from behind a baobab tree. The gunships were called in once more, and during a fierce 40-minute encounter, 20 more Swapo died but the South Africans still hadn't found Swapu's main base. Frustration built up for the Reckies and 3-2, particularly Delta Company, which had been tasked with finding this mysterious base around Kuomato. In October 1980, Delta Company was relieved after weeks of searching and SADF intelligence now believed that the main base was more than likely inside Kuamato itself and being protected by FAPLA directly. This posed a strategic challenge for 3-2 and the South Africans. They were supposed to avoid conflict with Fapla and the MPLA generally, focusing on Swapu. But if planned fighters were ensconced in towns behind Angolan army fortifications, then attacking could put civilians in jeopardy as well. There were other moves afoot. In September something took place which was to lead eventually to the historic battles at Quito Quinavali much later. Unita wrested control of the strategic village of Mavinga from Fapla, and it had one major facility that worried the MPLA. An airfield, Jonas Savimbi was going to use this airfield to fly in supplies and as part of his public relations campaign, it was his window on the world. As Willem Steenkamp writes, that one small village became a focal point for MPLA action over the next eight years of the war. As Luanda assaulted Mavinga, the South Africans would be inexorably drawn into the eastern sector repeatedly because Savimbi would need the SADF support in fighting off these heavily armed Angolan forces. It was not like Pretoria really had a choice. Savimbi had been buffering the eastern zone against Swapu. And so there was a short lull in November of 1980, but December was different. It took an announcement by Swapu's Secretary of Administration, Moses Garoub, to lift the lid on the action of that month. He claimed that a number of raids had just been made into Angola and had been repulsed by Swapo and Fapla. New South West African Commander General Lloyd at first rejected that report, but then admitted at a media conference that there had been bases targeted and said there were no South African casualties. Swapo claimed they'd killed a large number of SADF troops, but as usual, it was almost impossible for Pretoria to hide dozens of body bags from its prying media back home, and this was a case of blatant exaggeration. But you can see the cat and mouse game going on both militarily and politically. By Christmas, the usual number crunching went on. The SDF and SWATF had lost 100 men through 1980, the highest casualty figure ever. The insurgents, as you heard last episode, lost more, 1,447, which, by the way, was a staggering figure that would only be surpassed once more in the next eight years of this war. And yet, the insurgency hardly wobbled, as you heard. So New Year 1981 dawned, and it didn't take long before the dying resumed. But first, politics. In January, the South Africans, SWAPO, and other members of the Southwest African Internal Political Parties attended another set of pre-negotiation meetings in Geneva, which ended badly. They degenerated into a shouting match over the UN's pro-SWAPO bias. At about the same time, back in Novemberland, 3-2 Battalion was planning a special event. By mid-January 1981, Colonel Dion Ferreira was ordered to take personal command of further deployment inside Angola to find this missing Swapu HQ. But he wanted a lot more than one company to do that because everyone now suspected Kuamato was the base. And Kuamato had FAPLA units armed to the teeth, including heavy weapons, anti-aircraft guns, and even possibly tanks. So Ferreira sharpened his pencil and built a powerful force consisting of 3-2 battalions, Alpha and Bravo companies, an 81mm mortar group, one company each from 1 Parachute Battalion and 201 Battalion, and two recce teams from each of Special Forces' 201 and 44 Parachute Brigade. Crucially, as you're going to hear, Ferreira wanted full-blooded air support. That first Army HQ offered two gunships, which went down like a cup of cold sick, as they say, and then after more sharpening of pencil sounds, that was increased to six Puma helicopters, six gunships, a command and control Alouette, two Bosbok reconnaissance planes and four Impala strike aircraft. All were now waiting on his command at Undangua, but the pressure was obvious. Okay, Colonel, here's your personal air force. Now you better head off and find this elusive Swapo base or dot dot dot. So it was then that by 1400 hours on the 15th of January 1981, Ferreira's ground troops were in position and their target was the town of Kuamato. This had to be where Swapo was launching insurgency into Avambaland, as 3-2 and the Rekis had scoured pretty much everywhere else. First in were the parabats of one parachute battalion, who were driven in buffles to the edge of Quamato. As they swept the town, it was deserted. Then new information emerged that the nearest Fapla contingent was actually 16 kilometers northwest on the road to Zangongo. Then the local Angolan militia made the fatal mistake of not withdrawing and the Parabats located them, killing one and capturing a second. He was going to provide more information about what was going on. At 1700 hours 30, the parachute company was moving north of Quamato to set up an ambush when they walked into a Swapo platoon around 15 strong. The gunships were called in again to assist and on the way, pilots actually spotted another enemy base from the air. A platoon from 32nd Alpha Company was airlifted in and attacked the base. They were stopped dead in their tracks by the heavy fire, and so three more platoons of parabats and four gunships flew in to help. Six Pumas carrying troops arrived, and Lieutenant Arthur Walker and his flight engineer, Sergeant Boats Boutes, led a two-ship formation into the thick of the battle. Anti-aircraft fire was directed at these Pumas. Some took hits and one was Walker's, but he ignored the traces and continued to land and take off over the next three days of fighting around this town. Yes, the Allied gunships provided accurate fire support, so none of the pumas were shot down, but it was going to be a close call. The Impalas were scrambled at Undunga and flew over the base five times, knocking out some of the anti-aircraft guns and destroying three vehicles. That night, the gunships withdrew after running low on fuel, and at 2100 hours, the Parabats returned to tactical headquarters. One platoon from Alpha Company was left behind as night watch, and they managed to capture two more enemy in the darkness. As with previous captured POWs, these two were more than happy to spill the beans and explained how there were 150 farpler troops in the base. Now at least the attack force had a better idea about what they were facing, if the two POWs were telling the truth. When the fight resumed the next morning, the 16th of January, more anti-aircraft fire was directed at the Alouette gunships. The Impalas attacked again at 0820, firing rockets and their 30mm cannon but missed the targets. At 0847, a second airstrike was called in and this time the SAF was went for range rather than accuracy. That's because they dropped napalm as the Alouette gunships circled the base, looking out for movement. Then at 0855, 3-2 Battalions Bravo Company was airlifted in by Pumas for another attempt at the ground assault and eventually at eleven hundred hours thirty, resistance crumbled. More than seventy Fapla troops had been killed, and two three two riflemen were wounded. Given the ordinances used, remarkable really that more on both sides had not died. By the way, Puma pilot Lieutenant Walker was awarded the honorous Crooks Gold for his courage under fire, and no doubt the troops who were on the ground applauded this as they watched the choppers ducking and weaving through the floods of traces. Things were far from over around Kuamato, however. On the 17th of January, gunships spotted another base 9 kilometers south of the town and drew anti aircraft fire. They escaped damage heading back to tactical headquarters but had stored the coordinates for this southern base. That was good news for the Impalas, which flew in shortly afterwards and destroyed the base's 23 millimeter anti aircraft guns. Colonel Ferreira then prepped his men for another ground assault, and by noon, three twos Alpha and Bravo companies, along with 201 Battalion's Charlie Company, were in position. They were well on their way to controlling this part of southern Angola. The Impalas whistled in for a second strike, but just before Ferreira advanced, he received a message to end the engagement and withdraw immediately to Umbalantu, avoiding any further contact with Fapla on the way. By 1800, his units pulled back south of the cut line. The political fallout I mentioned a moment ago had interrupted military matters. Those who have been involved in these sorts of cross-border missions into foreign territories know the frustration that Ferreira experienced at this point. The next morning, the 18th of January, Colonel Ferreira was part of a detailed planning session at One Zero HQ at Oshakati. What were you thinking, shooting up FAPLA? he was asked. The fact that Swapo was hiding behind FAPLA and that the SADF had no option but to fight both was now considered completely out of bounds. Pereira was ordered in no uncertain terms to refrain from any further confrontation with FAPLA and to confine his operations to locating and dealing with Swapo only. It was just this kind of muddled-headed political interference that was creating contradictions for 3-2 and other SADF units. The frustration amongst leadership was growing as the political leadership, snug in their Pretoria beds, tried to play the good guy when basically it was impossible. It was also not good for morale either. As you'll hear next episode, Colonel Ferreira had hardly any time to take a breath after what must have been a shocking debriefing. By 1,200 hours 30 on the same day, his men were back in Angola, but now avoiding Fapla like the plague. And his wreckies were about to meet an extraordinary Portuguese farming family who were living near Beacon Fall, north of the Canene River, near Caluque, who were in grave danger. Somehow they'd managed to survive the revolution in the 1960s, Then the civil war marooned in a sea of death like an Angolan Swiss family Robinson. But it was now time for them to leave. What happened is for next episode. Right now we must halt and secure the perimeter. Thanks to the folks who donating towards the upkeep of this podcast. Ray in particular who lives in the United States. His substantial donation means I can fund the podcast and website hosting fees for another year. I'm in your debt Ray and my other funders thank you so much. If you'd like to contact me, head off to the website abwarpodcast.com and email from there or send me a direct message on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.